We all know the feeling, whether you're going through a long season in sports or maybe it feels like the semester is just dragging along and you can never get out of it, or maybe even you're feeling some sort of depression or, or laziness or, or lack of purpose in this life. What can we do for motivation as Christian athletes or maybe even just pe- people in general? Well, today that's what we're going to be discussing with someone who does not lack any motivation, any grit, or any determination in his life. Former MLB player and current Pittsburgh Pirate analyst Michael McHenry joins the show today to talk about how we can stay motivated and how he stay motivated to get to the big leagues and perform while he was there. Michael is one of those guys that you know nothing will stand in his way. As he talks about some personal battles and just what he's gone through in his life, in his, in his career as a baseball player, I'm going to be upfront and say that he's, he's real and this conversation is real. As Christians, I think we need to have these hard conversations and we need to be able to be vulnerable, which is something that I think Michael does spectacularly. Even I got motivated through this episode and I'm not even an athlete anymore. So as you do listen to this, buckle up because this episode, I mean, it's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you even cry and it will definitely make you think and get you motivated. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Competing for Christ podcast. I'm your host, Ken Burke, and today I am, I'm so excited to speak with Michael McHenry, a.k.a. The Fort. Man, I, I, I can't tell you how much I love that nickname, first of all, um, but I'll get to that in, in just a moment. Um, but Michael, how are you doing today, sir? I, I am pumped that you're on the podcast. I appreciate it. I love the nickname as well. And also, like we, we had a good connection with the beards immediately, the Bass Pro hat. <laughs> I mean, tomorrow's a big day for me going hunting for the first time, so you're kind of giving me advice before we got on, so I'm excited to where this thing's going to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be a great conversation tonight, um, and yeah, I'm excited to hear how the hunt goes, but um, like I just mentioned, your nickname, The Fort, like, you got to tell me where that nickname came from, and I'm sure, I'm sure you get this all, this, all the time, um, but I mean, I looked it up. It's, I found something about war, the War of 1812, and just your because you were like a a wall behind the plate. What What is the actual origin of that nickname? So Fort McHenry, obviously, is where, you know, they held their ground. Star Spangled Banner was written. And when I came over from the uh, Boston Red Sox, traded the Pirates, you know, I always took a lot of pride in what I did behind the plate, especially keeping the ball in front of me. My college coach was like, nothing gets by you. Nothing touches the backstop. Nothing touches the umpire. It's kind of cool because I literally just told this story to some kids I worked with at uh, Mars High School. And I really took that when I was 19 years old and said, okay, nothing gets by me. That's a cool standard. And it used to make me run a mile if the pitcher made a mistake or if the ball got by me. So it just became something that I just was adamant about. So, you know, you, you fast forward about seven years. I'm in the big leagues. And I'm catching these guys and we're winning, you know, just, just get traded over. I think it was June 11th and right, right out of the gate. I'm right in the game playing. We win, I think we win three or four games in a row and every chance I get to punch a ticket, which is, 
you know, get that swing and miss, block it and throw it to first base. I'm going to try to do it. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite things in baseball. And then Greg Brown and Bob Walk just said, this dude's a fort back there. And then Fort McHenry with the Star Spangled Banner. We played Baltimore later on. I got to go and raise a flag. Wow. Became a huge military buff and a military rep. Did everything I could with, with charities throughout. Have a bunch of really cool pictures. Have a lot of good friends now. So it turned into a lot more than you know I could even imagine. It was a gift from God because my uh, nickname prior to that was Mac and Quadzilla. <laughs> it, it, so like getting rid of Quadzilla being you know five <laughs> nine with you know big legs. And I think it's funny because uh, Strider in Atlanta who had yeah. the same high school coach as me, they call him Quadzilla. I was like, serves you right, young buck. That's what you get, <laughs> big legs. But yeah, I'll take the Ford all day long. I'm excited to have it. And, you know, it, it followed me. That's that's the craziest thing for me. No matter where I went, I would be walking down the street or at a stadium, whether it's minor leagues or big leagues, somebody would be like, Ford! Like, Man, I'll take this. I'll take this. Unless yeah. they call me Wes Welker in Denver, which that happened oh. a lot too. <laughs> you know, you... you I when I saw your picture, it was uh, I immediate, immediately thought of Wes Welker because you do no, resemble you him. I haven't heard I that swear, in a while. No way. I swear to you. <laughs> I swear. I, I got to meet him. I got I got to meet him. Did we won you? a look like contest when he was playing in Denver. <laughs> but here's the crazy part: when when I was on my honeymoon, 2008, we're in Antigua. Okay, young, get married at 23, Antigua. Dude is staring me down for a day or two, like literally giving me the creeper eyes and i don't notice things like that i'm i'm literally like buddy though sometimes just whatever <laughs> but my wife notices everything she's a noticer and she goes that dude is staring you down and i haven't had any big league experience i'm a nobody no fort still quadzilla <laughs> nobody and then finally we're at this restaurant it's all i think it was a sandals and uh, all inclusive guy comes up to me he's like hey wes like michael <laughs> I'm, I'm Michael. No, he's like, no, I know you're Wes. You have a bye week this week. And I know, I know it's you and I'll never forgive you for what you did with my sister. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, on my honeymoon, on your honeymoon. Then he tries to get me to get out my ID. I'm like all inclusive resort. I don't have an ID. So long story short, two wives be like, this is dumb. Stop it. You're being a child guy walks away. And I looked at my wife and I said, if he really came up to an NFL wide receiver on his bye week, is that a smart idea? Like, I'm sure Wes Welker, I mean, I met him. He's shorter than me. He weighed probably 30 pounds less than me, and he gets hit by dump trucks. So yeah. I'm pretty sure he's tough. So him walking up, but that's when it all started. So then when I was in Boston, Wes Welker. When I went to Denver, Wes Welker. My goal was for someone to call him Michael McHenry. And it finally uh, happened, and we got to meet. We want to look like contest, have the picture, outstanding, jersey signed. He didn't take a jersey from me. It was kind of sad, but <laughs> it, it, it was neat. And, and the crazy part is his wife, my wife, five foot one, maybe, really small, petite, dark hair, dark eyes, like have, have maybe an Indian-type skin, all the skin. So it was like all of it matched. I mean, I saw, people maybe sign autographs, take pictures, as Wes Welker, I'm like, I'm not him. They're like, we don't care. It's close enough. I'm like, okay. So oh it's funny gosh. you say that because I haven't heard that in a while. And some of the stories have been unreal. 
Yeah, well, now people listening to this are going to go look up your picture and then put it side by side next to Wes Welker. And they'll see because I, I know I'm not crazy. I know I'm not crazy to think that. But as we do kick it off today, kick off our conversation, I want to ask you right off the bat, have you always been a person of faith in sports? In my teenage years, it, it, it came about. So yes and no. I mean, sports mm. was something I did, honestly, when I slid out of the womb. Um, it was the first time I think I was called safe. But the reality of it is, is like I didn't grow up in church. My mom tried to get me to go, but the only time we really went was Easter, very similar to a lot of people's story. And, you know, at that time they had the Easter money there with eggs and candy in it. So what's my approach? I have ADD. I'm running all over the place, getting eggs with candy. Didn't remember anything else. So I didn't really have that background. It came later on. I'm sure we'll get into it. But, you know, when I was 16 years old, I got saved. Really cool story. And ever since then, it's been a roller coaster ride, spiritual warfare, uh, love and hate relationship, father and friend. But it's been really unbelievable. Some of the breathtaking things that have happened and some of the learning experience through grief, pain, suffering, joy, happiness. And I wouldn't take away any of it, honestly. Like people look at me like, what do you mean? You wouldn't like change any of it? I was like, no, like all the surgeries all the pain, all the loss, like it's the story. And you said something in the prayer and I told you I'd bring it up is, you know, for your good and your glory or for our good and your glory, either way. And that's something that me and my wife talk about all the time is like, no matter what happens in your life, our calling is to do it, to make sure that we understand that God allowed it, but he wants us to use it for his good and his glory. And until that, I feel like a lot of times, we don't understand why it happened. And there's periods in your life where like, why did this happen? You know, you probably get that all the time. Like, why does he allow so much suffering? Like, well, there's sin in the world. So that's probably one, one huge issue. And the reality of it is we're humans and we mess up. So we need to look at it and say, how can we use this suffering and say, Hmm, how can we shine through this? Yeah. It's such an easy question to, to ask why God allows suffering. It is not an easy question to ask why hasn't he just started over on the earth, start over in the world because we deserve it. I mean, we're, we're sin sinners. We sin every single day. And I mean, the fact that he can snap his fingers and we would all be gone in an instant and just, he can start over if he wanted to, but he allows um, us to have life here uh, and, and cultivate our lives in order to glorify him, which is, I mean, it's just amazing to, to live with other Christians that do that as well. Um, but Speaking of sports, how did you let God in, I guess you could say, throughout your athletic experience? You know, before I answer that question, think about if you were Noah. Mm. You know, you're talking about like him just starting over. I I don't want to be Noah. Yeah. I, I'm not that good at handiwork nope. or crafting, <laughs> let alone like, hey, go get an elephant and a lion and some chickens and throw them in a big boat and hang out for a while until I bring this water down. Like, no thanks. No. You know, like that responsibility, but... You know, I think that's the the reality is I think God doesn't have to do that because, you know, obviously we're waiting on Jesus' return. It seems like it's going to come any time now, but yeah. it, it it's the lessons learned and the stories told that we should be able to say, hmm, we've we've really had a lot of chances here. We were saved by grace. We, we got this unbelievable gift that we'll never deserve. And I, I think God's just like, like, literally, this is the last one. Hmm. Like, 
I'm, I'm bringing back the garden at some point. This is all going to change. The spiritual warfare is going to end. We're going to win. I'm going to ride down on a white horse. You know, I hope I make sure that I'm up in heaven and come down on the white horse because I just think that would be sweet. <laughs> Me and Gabriel just riding the horse down, whatever. Um, that's just personal. Yeah. That's personal preference. Um, but whatever you want, okay, I'll take whatever. Uh, but going back to um, really when God became present in my life, it was a seed planted. Um, I was I was a kid at 11 that had armpit hair. I was 5'8", almost 5'9". I'm still only 5'9". I was told I was going to be 6'3", wanted to be a shooting guard. That obviously didn't work out. Still want to get with that doctor and have a quality conversation about you know, maybe stretching the truth, especially when it comes to someone's, you know, height. So when I'm 12 and 13, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with older, older friends, some of my friends, brothers I was hanging out with, and I ended up in this Dillard's uh, store in the mall and was asked to do some type of like runway event with new clothes, weird question but it was a friend's mom that asked me she worked there i was like okay and they were pretty girls so i was like sure so i jump on and sure enough i meet my first like real girlfriend well she thought i was 14 or 15 she was 15 so i didn't say anything i didn't tell her mate she just assumed and we all know what assuming does so we ended up dating then i ended up at youth group with her and what i loved about youth group was the reception i had you know, when I walked in the room, it, it felt light, it, it felt right, and people came up to me and introduced themselves. And I think that's something that's been lost in the church, especially over the last three or four years. You know, people haven't been very cordial. They haven't really done much with fellowship. But I remember going in, and even even the adults in the room, especially a big man, you know, a big man came up to me and was like, hey, you're new. Did you come with Natalie? I'm like, yeah, name's Michael, and he introduced himself. So then he grabs the guitar, and they start worship, and I fell in love. I I had two learning disabilities as a kid, wasn't a good speller, wasn't good at English, but music and audio was something that I really enjoyed. I had to spend a lot of time because I had an audio perception disorder, listening to people going, ah, you know, like all that was miserable. So I fell in love with music because a lot of times I would switch if I could to, I think it was probably even a cassette player at the time. That's how old I feel. Um, but I love music and he starts trimming the guitar and I just remember, man, this is awesome. And then I just kept going back and then I made friends. And then it turns out a lot of those friends were end up guys I was going to be going to high school with. I played baseball with and ended up playing basketball with. And just the normalcy of that planted a seed that really started to, I guess, break its shell in high school. You know, we ended up breaking up. She had a lot of um, issues with her family, divorce and everything else. And, you know, really just had to walk away. And here I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a freshman in high school and trying to find my way, really never had an identity and never had that, I guess, fathery figure just kind of lead me the right way. So I just kind of grabbed onto whoever I could, whether it was a girl, a guy. And like I said, I was a big kid, fully grown, called man child. So I attached myself to older kids, started really hanging out with the wrong crowd, honestly didn't think twice about it, watched them do drugs, watched everything every day on the way to school. No problem. Didn't get involved because baseball was honestly all that mattered to me. Once I figured out basketball was going to be the uh, diminished dream. So here I am 16 years old and 
I'm, I'm out in North Carolina at a cabin and I'm intoxicated. I'm with friends that are older. My parents don't know I'm there. And I wake up and didn't know what happened, you know, and then that leads to alcoholism in my family and everything else. And you know, anything about that, like blacking out is very normal and, you know, not really out how much you drink and whatnot. So, you know, all these things, and it was really the feeling of just being confused, but that led to a couple weeks later, season starts, I'm a sophomore and we're watching the JV play. We're out in the middle of Sevier County, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee in the Smoky mountains. And I just get kind of taken back and my pride and ego is like, get out of here. People are looking at you, move away, move away. So I just kind of wander off into the woods, which I still think is funny. And I remember all of a sudden with this just unbelievable, like feeling of, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to just kind of sit here. I don't know if I fell to my knees. I don't know if I sat, I don't know if I was standing, but it felt like the whole weight of the world was just on top of me, like do something. So I prayed. And when I was praying, I remembered, you know, how to ask Jesus in my life. Cause if you're anywhere in the South, like, you know, that they're going to call you to the altar at some point, if you're at church, youth group or anything else. So I did. And then the weight went away. I don't know if I did it right. No idea. I just know I walked back. I'd cried. I felt like I was going to throw up, poop myself, all of it. Go back, finish watching this game. First at bat, hit a homer. I said, wow, we're going to get along really well. This is awesome. And everything shifted. I stopped hanging out with the, the people that I was hanging out with. The people that were doing drugs ended up transferring schools. My best friend that you know was stealing from me and doing some things that should never have happened just kind of disappeared. And all of a sudden I'm looking up and I'm going to church on my own. I'm going to Bible, uh, Bible studies and I'm surrounding myself with the right people. And it was all based around just some fellowship and some normalcy. And years later, I remember, uh, Louis Giglio at a conference saying, you have to be normal before you get weird as Christians. We're weird. I mean, think about it. We're following a carpenter and saying, yeah, you're my salvation. Thank you for the bench you made me. And it, it, it can get weird, right? I always think about the fisher, the fishers of men that drop their net and leave. Tell me one person you would drop your job, can't feed your family, can't do anything, and follow. Don't worry, I'll wait, right? And that's the reality. Like, we are weird. So being normal is what led me to Christ. And it wasn't anyone else, and it never is. It's always Jesus. And that started a journey that was something I could have never imagined even up to now because that identity was never created. I was still latching on because all those things that are built up in, in you as a child don't go away just because, you know, you find Jesus. It's through that relationship and understanding of who he is and who you are through him that changes you. And that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to your story so much because as an athlete, you have so much, um, it feels like you have so much pressure on you to succeed and um, you want to just at times conform to the crowd, conform to conform to what is going on around you. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> from the earthly standpoint, Christians are very weird. And in Christian, I like how you put that because um, I'm a weird person. 
but um it's it's no. so true that <laughs> it's so true like we are supposed to be supposed to be so countercultural um in a world that prioritizes materialism over all, everything else um but i love that story and thank you for sharing uh just part of your testimony i obviously you played high school baseball you you played at middle tennessee state Drafted in 2006 by the Rockies, and and then playing the majors for a couple of year for a few years. What do you contribute that success to? Persistence, relentless grit, and just an unwillingness to fail. Mm. Um, and I don't believe in failure, but you know, as a kid, I was really strong-willed and. I adapted to the situation really well somehow. I have no idea how. I, I think it's maybe from uh, Dorothy Mantooth, who is my mom. Um, if you've ever seen that movie, she's a remarkable person. She gave me a life that she didn't have. Uh, she grew up in different foster cares. She ended up taking care of her mom, who you know allowed abuse to happen to her. Mm. She was forced to give up her first child. So that made that Wes Walker story even weirder later on in life because I really asked my mom is he really my brother? Cause I have a brother that I didn't know I had found out at 25. So like she gave me a life that was remarkable. And I watched her year after year, even at right now at 68 or 69, I'm not sure. Sorry, mom. Um, I'll say 42. She's working, you know, and she tried to retire for three months and she went right back to work. And I told her, I was like, you're going to be irreplaceable because you've done so much. You've ran that company for so long I bet they give you a raise and they sure enough did. She makes just as much money now working three days a week as she did, you know, before she retired. And it's been really neat to see. And that's where that, I guess, relentless grit came that like when I put my mind on something and still to today, if I really put my mind on something and I, and I say, I'm going to do this, you can't get in my way. Like you, you can't stop me. And that was one of my walkout songs. In, in, in the big leagues, you can't stop me by Andy Mineo. And mm-hmm. It's based around that because you're always told all the things you can't, too short, too stocky, can't do this, can't do that. You're never going to do anything in college. You're never going to make it through your freshman year. Oh, whoops, Dean's List. The reality of it is, if you f- are willing to look at how, you'll find, you'll, you'll find a way. You know, like, and, and if you have a big enough why, that was always hard for me because my why was never processed. I was always on to the next thing and I didn't enjoy the journey the way I should. So that's something I really try to hone in on myself now, but I'll go to extreme measures to figure out what I need to figure out. And I think that's based around my childhood, my mom, you learn by doing, and I will cannonball 100%, very similar tomorrow going hunting. I don't even know what I'm going to shoot. I know I'm going to pay for it, eat it at some point, And I hope I hit it, you know? And there's going to be some really cool people, and that's why I'm going. I mean, that, that, that's the reality. Because I, I feel like that if you could paint a picture of what Jesus was, like he had three years really of biblical ministry that we really understand we have some depth with. But mm. 30 years, dude was, you know, laying the hammer, doing everything he needed to do properly. And I would love to think through how amazing of a carpenter he was. Like, you know, probably giving tips back, mm. you know, Giving advice, having absolutely outstanding conversation and fellowship with people, being normal. And then he got really weird, right? He got really weird. Like, you know, people touching him and woo, miracle. And that's what we need to look at throughout our life and say, like, 
we just need to show up, do the work. And then when God has that call and go and don't say how or why or anything else. And I was just listening to something before we got on said, so often we fear so much of what God wants us to do when the reality of it is, why do we have any fear? The only thing we should fear is God himself. And I thought, yeah, like that, that's kind of terrifying, but it's something we don't talk about in today's society. Like he's all powerful, all knowing. And we need to understand that that's, that's the thing we should fear. That's the thing that should be hard to look at. Not, you know, what is on social media or the bad grade we got or the over 22 we had, or the year that you felt like you couldn't hit anything, whatever, you know, none of that really in the end matters. And as you start to understand that, you kind of like, what do I do with this? I have never looked at Jesus's life like what you just described. And I mean, I, like I, I looked at so many other people's lives, like, I mean, Peter and Paul, especially, and other people that lived sinful lives before their ministry. But I never looked at Jesus as, you know, he was still perfect all those 30 years. But then God said, okay, it's time to go. It's time to be who I called you to be. And for those three years, he lived out his purpose. And I, I challenge you, I, I went through some real trauma going down this path, but like, look at Jesus as a human being. A lot of people don't look at Jesus as the human being he was. Like, think about a buddy that you have that's just a good dude. That could have been Jesus, right? Like, man, Mark is an absolute outstanding person. He mowed my lawn yesterday. Like, I can't believe he cooked me dinner. You know, he made a casserole and gave me brownies. Unreal. Dude is off the charts cool. And he built me a bench. You know, like, that's what was going on. And I I don't know who, uh, I don't know if it was a, a blog I read, but it was about, would you invite Jesus to the barbecue? If you won't lie to yourself, guaranteed you would invite Jesus to the barbecue because that friend that is probably Jesus, you haven't reached out to, you haven't talked to, you maybe even not even looked at. Mm. And I mean, that that's evident all through the Bible of what Jesus says, like, you know, talking about the homeless, the poor, the child, and how often those people are overlooked. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that is such good advice. And I think it just it it speaks to who Jesus is as a human and you know what we're called to be like as a human on this earth because he was even though he was 100% human and 100% God we're you know we're only 100% human so we have to foster the relationships that God has put in front of us but when talking about relationships what were some of the dynamics and some of the, the relationships that you had during your career? Because, I mean, obviously you've probably worked with a bunch of pitchers and a bunch of catchers throughout the throughout your career, but was there anyone that like you could go to for any specific teammate that you could go to for like spiritual accountability? Yeah, accountability is a tough word. And I, I think it's because of me being extreme. Um mm. I'm a Matt Chandler accountability type. I don't know if you know much about how he goes about it, but um, he opens up his bank statements. He has a group of four or five men that check his social media. Mm. He doesn't allow women in his office because he knows he has a Superman complex. He actually just stepped down for, I believe, three or four weeks because his group said, you know, these people brought up this concern because he was telling jokes on social media with someone in his congregation and the dude's on fire right now. If you want to listen to something that's awesome, just go listen to him. But he said, okay, if you guys think so, cool. And he said, like, the reality of it is, it's like, that's stepping up. 
like when he said that, I was like, wow, like he doesn't have to do that. He did nothing wrong. His wife read it. His buddies read it. The, the guys that are keeping him accountable read it. And I heard that, I believe in 2009 or 10 at a con- same conference as uh, Giglio, he was talking about that. And I was like, that's accountability. Like if you want real accountability, Christian accountability, open up your life. Yeah. Like, and th- there's apps for sexual immorality. There's, there's all the things that are available but it's still worldly. It's you saying, here I am in the dark, naked, and completely unafraid of who I am because I want to be closer to Jesus. And people don't want to do that. And that, that's been hard for me. So like that accountability that you talk about, yeah, like there was bits and pieces and it was always disappointing and frustrating because I'm an all in or all out person. And it was hard. So it made me look at the, the Christian as a human Instead of seeing Jesus, I was seeing disappointment. I was seeing the worldly view because if I have a Savior that died for my sin, carried a cross, and I've been to Israel, seeing just the reality of how far he carried it, how heavy that was. Like, think about carrying a two by four, you know, nailed into your hand, staying alive, and then just to get a breath when you get hung, you, you literally, it feels like you're getting punctured with a knife. Like it, it, you have to release your rib cage because it's pulling you and you ultimately die of asphyxiation and it, it's crazy. And they didn't talk about the, the feces thrown at them. They, they didn't talk about, you know, the punching, the kicking and everything that was going on. And a lot of these people he did miracles for, he ministered to, he preached to, and that's heavy. You know, Billy Graham, a lot in his ministry said, when you really understand what Christ did, it's hard to look up. It's hard to say, I deserve that because we don't. And that's been a really big struggle over the last couple of years in my walk. And it relates back to that accountability question. So I know that's a little off. I had some great people pour into me. I had some amazing people. But what I've learned is this, understand who you are, whatever you have to do to become the person you need to be, figure it out and go all in with it, and don't expect it from someone else. The only person to keep you accountable is you. You can ask for help. If they don't do it, it's your fault for having that expectation. Mm. Because if I'm going to sit here and complain about anything, the reality of it is 13 out of 13 disappointed Jesus, right? And I always think about after being in the garden and, and, and seeing some of the places that he prayed the night before he was convicted and died for our sins, crying blood. And that's a like that's a real scientific thing. Read what you have to go through to get there and think about the stress that felt. But that's the weight, right? So that there's always a context and there's always like some reality you can look at and say, well, that reality is just way different. And I can look at that and say, what am I complaining for? Like, figure it out. You know, like, you got to find a way to figure it out. Like, no one's coming to help you. You've already been, you know, saved. So how are you going to use this and, and move forward? And that that's it. So that accountability comes from the relationship with prayer, with listening, with with really just understanding your father and friend, which is Jesus. I can be so um, concentrated on myself and 
so focused on hiding stuff that I do and you know it doesn't even come up in a conversation it takes it takes you or whoever it is to like ask people for help because if you don't ask for help no one's ever going to know what you struggle with no one's ever going to know that you need help actually and i i love that you said you're an all in person what do you what do you mean by that because or um, i should say why are you like that do you think i honestly didn't I don't know if I learned any other way. Hmm. Um, and as good as it sounds, it's just as bad, you know, because I can get absolutely asphyxiated on something and not leave. That persistence comes out. My wife says, you are the definition of persistence will always tear down the resistance. And that's literally 100% true. Like, hey, dad. Will you go throw to me? 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 And I would do it over and over and over and over again. So that will to to win or that will to, you know, get to that next thing was always going to motivate me until that next thing wasn't there. And I think when you were talking about, you know, being vulnerable, I, I just did something recently with some uh, NFL guys and I said, vulnerability is the ultimate way to get victory. Mm. And if you look throughout history, especially the word vulnerability, which comes from the Latin word courage, C-O-R, core. And they changed what vulnerability was and made it seem weak. But it's the exact opposite. If a strong man can be vulnerable, that's actually the strongest thing he could do. Just looking strong and stuff. And it, it plays perfect into the military guys I've met because they said, without a doubt, some of the craziest athletic, some of the Greek God-looking type guys that would show up never made it. And these are instructors that said that. It's like, you, you thought, no chance this guy's not going to make it. And it's because they didn't have the ability to be vulnerable enough, so they would go ring that bell. Because you had to look in the depths of darkness to get through buds. And I did a mini buds with them, and it was nothing close. And... I was like, man, I can't imagine them throwing tacos at me or a blanket after doing, you know, surf torture and, and, and all those things. But I think if people could look at life that way, it would be a blessing because every guy that I've ever met that's gone through something like that or gone through just immense suffering, they understand what love is. They understand what sacrifices. They understand things that other people can't, but in today's society, you're a weirdo, you're crazy when you talk at those extremes. So that all-in type personality was always tough to understand like, well, why wouldn't you want to tell me that you're doing something you shouldn't? Why wouldn't you want to, you know, make a bet and sign a contract with the lawyer to make sure that happens and we're hold accountable? Like Kobe Bryant, that's what he did. He literally made a contract, contract sealed, right? If you really, really want to do something, there's a way. But are you willing to do what that way would have to be? A lot of people won't, yeah. even when it comes to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, especially when it comes to Jesus most of the time. Yeah, and I think it's shame that we're not willing to look at, And yeah. from my experience. Yeah. You know, like that's where accountability is tough. It's like, you know what's wrong, you know what you're doing, and if you're open and vulnerable about it, probably good things are going to happen. And Jordan Peterson says, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And too often we stay with, like, in our society, it's it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, 
You're right, but it's not okay to stay there. Why? How did you get there? How are we going to dig out? And what's it going to take? And if it's not working, but society says this is the way it should work, it's still not working, you know? And that's an easy way to say, well, the test has been done. It's not helping. Let's try something different, you know? And that's being all in, like willing to adapt any way you can just to figure it out. Because once you figure it out, that piece is just crazy intoxicating. You just want to run through it. Like, okay, I got one piece of the puzzle. Let's go to the next. Yeah. And keep building off that. That's so crucial. So crucial. Absolutely. But throughout each episode that, that we do, um, I like to talk to guests with about a specific topic in our conversation. And I wanted to talk to you today about how athletes can stay motivated throughout their careers, no matter if they're playing just throughout high school or they actually make it to the big league, big leagues like yourself. So how can athletes and people and coaches and just whoever, how can they stay motivated throughout the, throughout the sports that they play and the sports that, I mean, just life, how do they, how can they stay motivated? Because I think as for yourself, whenever I log on to social media now, now that I follow you, I see a motivational quote every single morning and it fires me up. I'm telling you, (laughs) but you, I mean, you seem like a very motivation, motivational person, uh, and you seem like you're always motivated. So what would you say to athletes specifically? You know, I, I do a lot of that on social media based on some of the things maybe I need to hear. Mm. So it's convicting to me. So it's, it's a sense of a little bit of accountability. Or it's because I believe someone needs to hear it, you know, and I automate uh, some of the stuff and I don't know what it's going to be because I'll do it three, four months, you know, down the line. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I wonder what was automated today. And I'll go look at it. And I mean, I would say 90% of the time it just hits me right in the face. So the same way you're feeling that way, I tried to some way do that to myself, which is kind of, kind of wild. And I usually try to contextualize different people that way. So like, no matter what walk of life they come from, what can I learn from them? How, how, how did they get to this point? Why are they like that? And some of the craziest smart people I've ever met have been atheists, have, have not been believers, but I've learned more from them. And a lot of times they show me more grace than actual believer because we get caught up in religion when we should be caught up in Jesus. And they only see religion. They don't see Jesus because we're doing the wrong things so often. So, um, going back to, to motivation, I think the biggest thing is serve. My greatest success always came when I was serving the most. It, 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 I think is a great biblical principle and all roads always lead back to the Bible. Um, I go back to 2014. It's my best year in the big leagues. And I never thought about my swing. I never thought about anything. I thought about taking care of the guys around me. We had a lot of dysfunction in the locker room with coaches, um, just a lot of, you know, kind of childish things going on. When, when you think about the big leagues, we weren't winning, but my goal every time when I played and I accepted prior to that season after I got hurt with the Bucks and got designated that, hey, I'm going to be the best backup I can be. I can't, you know, get lied to or get told I'm going to be a starter and then they sign someone and, and, and really just go all in and then really the things I can't control, I'm trying to control. So I just said, I'm going to be the best backup in baseball. And I was, and it was, it was great. But looking back, which I, I've done a lot over the last five or six years, it was because I was serving. And then I go to the next like thing is stay curious. 
and always pretend like you're the dumbest person in the room, even when you're not. And when people are saying things that you're like, oh, I don't believe in that. Like, let them keep going. Let them walk through it. Like, I talk for a living. Never would have dreamed I'd be doing that. But some of the times when I don't say a word are the dumbest things to other people. Like, I I remember I was getting into business after I retired, and my buddy that brought me in, he said, how do you do that? I don't have the patience to listen to the stupidity of that. And I said, honestly, bro, I learn something every time. I listen and I think at one point I was that naive or that clueless in a situation and I wish somebody would have shown me some type of grace and just listened. And I always think, well, how did they learn that? Where did that come from? Why did they think this way? Like, why can't they see what's going on? And then I ask them usually like, what am I missing here that I'm not explaining to you? Like, what could we do better as a company or me as a human to make you feel different about what's going on in this conversation. And you learn because everyone learns different. Everybody understands different. And I learned that through, you know, having a hard time in school and being told I was dumb and blah, blah, blah. But looking back, it's like, well, because everyone's a little different just because they read faster. doesn't mean that they can jump higher. doesn't mean that they can throw hard. doesn't mean that they're good at math, but they can read better. Great. Kudos to you. But 10 years from now, Let's come back and see who's reading better, mm-hmm. right? And that's really grit, you know? Angela Duckworth did that study. Is like, what will prove success over and over and over and over again isn't talent, isn't how you're brought up. It's grit, grit, grit. And I think you have to serve. You have to stay curious. And you have to be willing to do the things that a lot of people won't to fill that euphoric uh, feeling of, okay, I, I accomplished this. So you take on the responsibility to accomplish. And once you've accomplished, that creates conviction, right? And that conviction creates confidence. And then you're just repeating that cycle that turns into discipline and habits. And then you don't need motivation. It dies because you've created a lifestyle with values, principles, and you're looking at it as like, all right, Alarm goes off. I'm up like count Dracula. Boom. Eat this because I feel better. And it just starts to work well. And that motivation doesn't exist anymore. And that's when you don't need that accountability. And it's like, how do I hold on to this? And I I call it life's in the zone, right? In the zone is always something you could grasp in sports. If you're willing to look at the zone you're in and it's the same way in life, you, you can find a win period. And you can find the zone you need to be in, but you have to look at where you're at. And that's the hardest thing to do, right? That's why God put a mirror of Jesus's face in front of us. We have a hard time looking at ourselves because our creator has a hard time looking at us. Like I'm sitting up here, Michael, what are you doing? Don't do this. Don't, don't do it. Don't. He ate the Twinkie again. He, He ate the Twinkie again. He's idolizing Twinkies, you know, and it's just looking at it a little bit different, yeah. you know, and, and, and saying, how much can I handle and let's go. The relationship between God and humans is like us and dogs. Like we know dogs will go against us every single time. They'll pee on the rug. And you, even when you tell them like, hey, don't pee on the rug, they're going to pee on the rug. And I, I don't, 
I don't know what the Jesus facilitator is there, but that relationship between God and humans is like that. I I think there's a ministry to be said with dogs. And the reason why I say that is my dog chases lights. And I always say, if I could learn something every single day, it's watching my dog wander the light. Now, now that I've said that, watch every animal, watch pieces of grass, watch a tree. What do they do? They all turn towards the light. And like we can learn from that because God created that. And that is an absolute perfect picture of what we should be doing. And you're right. Like that, that, that dog is, is defiant, but a lot of times it's defiant because of the things we've like done, right? Maybe we neglected, you know, we didn't show enough love. Oh wait, like all those things we do in our walk. And I I think it's a perfect, perfect picture. I think you could teach many, many studies on, you know, how either a dog or a child, someone that actually needs you and say, hmm, maybe I can learn something because that simplicity really plays when it comes to your creator, because I don't understand what God's like. And I think our society has been quick to say, oh, he's he's a bearded Jewish man, Israelite, and like some people say, he's white, he's black, he's, no, he's God. Like, you can't even look at him. Like, stop. He was in a burning bush. Let's go. Like, we're not going to figure this out because we don't understand. Until you're a entity, you don't understand, right? Created heaven, earth. Like, I have a hard time creating my bed being made <laughs> in the morning. And I think that's not said in our, in, in, especially in the church. Like, mm. it, it's, it's fluffy, very, very fluffy. How how can athletes stay motivated spiritually? Then? Honesty, mm. and and finding ways to make it work. So music, I said, was really important to me. Um, I have a playlist that says um, looking looking up, not looking out. And my wife took uh, a course uh, called Holy Yoga, and they talked about just like in yoga and in your posture, you want the alignment to be this way before we can go this way. And I, and I always say, if you take your spine out, right, your spinal cord, you're dead. That's the perfect alignment towards God. And we need to make sure that we are in the line. However that is, you got to figure that out. For me, it's making sure that I listen to good music. I, I, I get into podcast. I find the people that are asking really tough questions. And I learn from them because that makes me look at things differently and dive. And then over committing to stuff like this. Because I think men need to have talk through therapy when it comes to fellowship. I think the greatest opportunity to grow, because you even said it already in in our in the short conversation that like it takes someone kind of convicting you in a way by saying something they did. And then you kind of walk through it. Yeah. And I always said, the biggest thing that we don't do as Christian men after something like this is debrief. So I started a while back, and I don't do this regularly, but I try is I debrief situations. So if I go speak somewhere or God hits me with something, I'll turn on the recorder and I just speak. And it'll come back at some point or something will happen 
but that'll speak volumes to me because I'm like, I don't understand this now, but let's see what happens later down the road. So that way you get that understanding of like, okay, where was I at? Why did that happen? And for me, it's talking through it. If I write, I'm not as good. I try, but it, it doesn't come across. I do challenge myself that way, but you find the way, right? So whether you surround yourself with people, you know, I, I meditate with barbells in the weight room and that that's a good place for me. You know, it's a place where I listen the best and you just have to find that to get that motivation to stay in your spiritual walk. Cause the disappointment in your walk with Christ is overwhelming because we always put a face that should not exist there. Yeah. Wow. What was it like playing 162 games a year? I mean, more or less, depending on, you know, breaks and playoffs and stuff like that. How was that on your body and how was it on your mind? You know, I think if no one ever mentioned it, I never would have thought about it. (laughs) You know, like, because you think about it as a kid, how many games did you play between high school, fall ball, summer ball showcases? Oh, I have no idea. A ton. Yeah. Right. No clue. And then you go play church league basketball and then you go to the local gym and play basketball and then you work out and then you'd have enough energy to go to the movies, (laughs) you know, like, because you didn't know any better. I think we, we learn things that don't help us in any way. And it's usually from someone else's insecurity. Like someone played 162 games, like, Oh my gosh, it's such a grind. Oh, (laughs) it's so awful. My body's breaking down. Well, with the technology that's available now, with the recovery, with all the advancements, there's more injuries in today's game than ever before. Make it make sense, right? And what did Yogi Bear say? 90% middle, uh, mental, 50% physical, <laughs> something like that. Like That's literally what they're doing. They're, they're speaking something into existence. And I have a great way to look at this is Colorado when I played there. Everybody was terrified to pitch there. Everybody said, oh, you have inflated numbers. You have this. I'm like, yeah, but nobody talks about all the hard things there too. I couldn't sleep, right? I couldn't sleep at elevation. So the first couple of nights, I'd get two or three hours of sleep, maybe. I couldn't stay hydrated. You can't recover. There's a lot of downside to this. There's a reason why Olympic athletes go train there. You can't breathe. You need oxygen to recover. So like, they never talk about that. And then pitchers say, the breaking balls don't break. Yeah, but the fastballs cut. They spin faster. They can go harder because the air is thinner. So how can we use that to our advantage? And by the way, I faced Kershaw yesterday. He struck me out on three pitches. They were all breaking balls and they were disgusting. How is he doing it? I think if we want to find an excuse, we're going to. And it's just because no one found a solution. And what I said is like, let's do everything that no one's done. Let's throw breaking balls in the dirt every single time. If they hang, at least it's your best breaking ball. Let's play the ball instead of playing the pitch. Let's focus on the personality and not the philosophy. And I had a great ERA there. It's something I brag on all the time because it's something that was really important to me. Nobody ever looked at it. Years down the line, somebody reached out and was like, hey, like you had one of the best ERAs and you won a ton of games as a backup. Like, What gives? And I was like, I just did everyone else that everything that everyone wanted to do, I did the opposite. You know, because everybody's complaining about it and saying why you can't, why this, why that. And it's like, well, somebody's doing it. You know, these guys are doing it. I watched this guy do it for years. How do we figure it out? And that's it. Like, let's figure it out today and then we'll figure it out tomorrow. I got in so much trouble by just winning baseball games. 
because it was important for me to love the guy 60 feet, six inches away, serve him. And I was taught it's my pitching staff in college. When, when I took the starting role as a sophomore, as a catcher, he said, this is your staff. And when I knew it, it's when you said it was your staff. I call my own games, everything. And I learned to serve those guys by throwing my body out there, grabbing the ball barehanded instead of letting it get by me. Whatever I could to show them that, hey, I'm going to live and die for you. I'm going to figure it out today, some way, shape, or form. And then ultimately, they believe in themselves because it's hard out out there on the island. So why make it harder by saying, oh, you know, you got to really get on top of your breaking ball. We don't want to try to overspin it. We don't want to do this. I'm like, how about what do we want to do? Like, let's focus on that. Like, where can I throw my breaking ball? Where should the focus be? And I think it's a great life lesson, right? Like, how can we figure out how to win where we're at right now? And then take that next step, then the next one. Because if you don't win the first one, you're going to be repeating over and over and over again. And that lesson's never really sunk in. Yeah, I went to Denver last September and it <laughs> the air was definitely thinner. It was definitely thinner. But yeah, I mean, that goes back to mindset. So much of your mindset, if you don't, if you just keep replaying all the wrong and all the hard stuff and all the stuff that's going against you, it makes it a hundred percent harder. It makes it so much harder mentally as I mean, and physically, like it's going to be hard either way and focusing on the positive and focusing on what is going right is definitely a hundred percent what it was, what we should be doing as athletes. Can, can I add one thing to that? If if you're a kid out there or you're a parent and you're saying anything like that, go pick up a bat. Go hit against a high school pitcher. Mm -hmm. When you're getting on to your kid about, how did you swing and miss that? You go try. <laughs> you feel what it feels like when he throws a nasty breaking ball that started at your face and you didn't even know he had the pitch. And then expect to hit the fastball right down the middle but you're literally thinking the breaking ball at your face is coming. And that's, that's a standard I, I hope to keep for a very long time is like when I tell a kid something, I want to say it with certainty that this is what I have been doing. Like when I got out of baseball, I literally was trying to learn how to teach kids, especially younger kids. I was way too enthralled in analytics and body mechanics. And I was seeing things in HD and they were literally with crowns you know, coloring. And I was like, okay, how do I get here in a way? And I tried so many cool things and I spent so many hours for nothing with these kids. Like I wasn't charging them anything. I didn't care because it was, a, I, I saw it as a mutual agreement. And I think too often we get away from like a sport or something and we forget how hard it is. You know, I always think mm. about that with preachers, Yeah, you know, like they go up there every single day and they're performing and now that I do pre and post and broadcast, I'm like, there's days where you just turn the light on. And I can only imagine how hard that is to stay in a true relationship with Christ without some really cool people around you. Because it is, you're turning it on. Like your job is to help someone see Jesus today. Whether your mom or dad just passed away, whether you, you just lost a child in the womb, whether... You just got in an argument with your wife. It doesn't matter. You got to show up. You got to play. No one cares. No one. You'll get emails saying, why did you say that? You can't work your way to heaven. Okay. Sorry. Like mistake. Human. Remember human. 
you know, and that's something that as a professional athlete, high school athlete or anything, that context is usually completely forgotten about. And I think parents and kids and fans and professional athletes always should remember that because I don't know what it would be like to be an astrophysicist, right? So if something blows up in the sky, maybe I should really think hard about, I had nothing to do with that. I probably shouldn't have an opinion, you know, because someone way smarter than me made a mistake and that's human in in a nutshell, right? So I think if, if you're out there and you're, you're like, oh, you should blah, 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 especially coaches and high school coaches, I'm yelling at you. Pick up a bat, go do the squats, go jump the plyos, go steal bases, go do it. And if you're like, oh, I can't, I have a knee, I have this. I saw a 100-year-old guy run a marathon. I don't want to hear it. David Goggins made it through buds, which like fractures in his, in his shins the third time. Story after story, the human body and what it can endure, what it can do is remarkable. So the excuse is just your unwillingness to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life will get in the way. And I, I think we as human beings need to realize that not, not everybody is going to see um, what you're going through in your life. And I mean, I, I looked this up, uh, Michael, but your, your father was, he was diagnosed with cancer while you were playing one year. I just I, I wanted to ask you this question because I mean, as you know, as athletes, life still goes on. Life is still hard, even as an athlete in, in your athletic career. How did you stay motivated spiritually and physically during that time with your dad's cancer diagnosis? Have you ever done a slip and slide? Yes. I feel like that's where my walk with Christ got on a spiritual slip and slide, and it's mm. because all the things I realized and were we're learning all at the same time. Um, so put it in some context, 2013, four for four in Miami, slide in second base, my knee gets stuck, literally just stuck. And my meniscus is underneath my kneecap and I can't move it. Finish the game, something to take a lot of pride in because I always think you should finish something you start. And went and had surgery in LA, uh, went against a lot of recommendations and, you know, missed the playoffs. And then in 14, I had the best year of my career. Really dove in, owned, 100% owned every step of the process of my rehab. I was doing stuff in the pool, wasn't a protocol. I read thousands and thousands of pages um, and learned so much that, that each injury I had, the three surgeries in college, everything was always a great learning experience. And it was always just like, man, thank you. This was awesome. Then in 15, I'm seven for seven, my first seven at bats in spring, play at the plate. My knee feels funny, my other knee, my right knee. I'm like, ah, no big deal. Well, then throughout the year, I'm getting it drained and I'm hitting 220 and I'm not playing the way I thought. And here I am, first year after my real arbitration, real arbitration, great opportunity to get a multi year deal. The, the ace wants me in there every single chance. He's having a great year. And I end up having surgery again. That was 2015. Get designated, get lied to by someone that I really respected all because he didn't want to look at what the reality was and tell me the truth. I made him, and that was the first time I ever did that with any, I guess, man or superior or boss, and it was my GM in Colorado, and he wouldn't tell me why 
he was designating me with any real validation. And I had all my numbers, like my receiving numbers were better. Like all these things I played months hurt. Everyone knew. And I just felt like defeated, but it felt good when he told me the truth. His first signing was the guy in front of me. Thank you. Like, and I, and I literally said, this is all the things I'm bad at. And this is how I'm going to improve them. Like we had a great conversation and I don't know if that meant anything to him. It meant something to me that it got to that point and that vulnerability came out and that started a journey. But that year, you know, I tried to own the rehab. I got a lot of pushback. Um, it was a different, it was the same surgery I had two tilted meniscus, uh, because of the way I grew up and walked my brother that I didn't know I had also had the same thing, had the same surgeries. Um, but they did a microfracture, so a lot more went into this. And the rehab I was doing was tough. It just never seemed to line up. And all while, you know, trying to figure out what's next, you know, really starting the fertility journey with my wife. And all of a sudden, I get a call that my dad has esophageal cancer. And my first thing was mom's not going to stop working. I got to go home. And my wife did too. So like we bounced and by the grace of God, my wife, like I told you, is a noticer and she saved my dad's life in my opinion, because there was a surgery. They would cut out esophageal cancer is one of the cancers you don't want to hear. It's, I think it's a 22% success rate, uh, like, or survival rate is what it is. And this surgery, they cut out pretty much your entire throat or bottom part of esophageal all the way through some of your intestines and stomach and then tie what's left together. And I'm sitting there listening, white as a ghost. My mom, with all of the things she went through in her life, is just going to say, okay, when do we go? And my dad is literally like Casper, the ghost. And my wife goes, what's the quality of life? And this doctor had no emotion, had no reality. I, he was like, if you've ever seen the show House, he just told it exactly how it was. Or if you've seen The Good Doctor, the, the kid that had autism, just straight to the point, this was happening. It was an 18-hour surgery or something stupid. And my wife asked that question, and the doctor just looked at her like, not good, not good at all. He'll be on a feeding tube for the rest of his life. Wow. And she goes, well, if the success rate is bad, the quality of life is bad, then what's the benefit? And that was the moment my brain went, money, lots and lots of money. And that takes me to a whole nother level of stuff. But so that moment, my wife noticed something and I always made sure she was in the room and all this stuff. And she literally saved my dad's life. But that process was tough. Um, a lot of things, when I noticed, I watched my dad hallucinate for weeks on end. Um, if you don't know why, go look it up. It's pretty crazy stuff, scratching his arm to pieces um, because he was getting the wrong medicine and there wasn't enough, I guess, transparency that should have been. So I had to face some really tough conversations with my mom. This is the first time I stood up to her. Uh, and... One thing about my mom with the trauma, me raising my voice to my mom, she'd break down no matter what, even as a child. Um, so I can't imagine what all she really went through. And I was learning all this from 2011 
to 15, all the things was, were slowly coming out from, you know, finding out I had a brother that I didn't know I had, you know, the abuse, her stepdad trying to kill her, burning the house down. Like there's just a lot. And it was just like every couple months, it was something new. Oh, I have four aunts. Oh, I'm at the field. Hey, I'm related to you. It's just on and on and on. So all this stuff's coming. And I'm like, what is going on? And I'm watching this with my dad. I face my mom. And then at 1130 at night, I'm going to hit. I'm going to throw. I'm not sleeping. Uh, my trainers let me come in. I'm doing my own rehab. And my wife's going to the pool with me to do stuff there. We're breaking into places. Whatever we can do, we were doing. And then I got to choose where to play, right? Where am I going to go play? And I got a guaranteed offer of over a million dollars. And I was like, I don't know, Jack, what do you think? Like, I feel like Texas is the better place, but this is a guarantee and guaranteed playing time is with San Francisco. Um, and I was like, this just seems too good to be true. And we always let our dog pick. We'd put out like the teams that are there and say, all right, Griff, go pick. And he picked San Francisco. That was the first time I didn't go with my, I thought I was going with my gut, but I was actually going with, what had previously happened in Colorado. I went to Colorado, took a minor league deal, took, said no to guaranteed money based on the relationships I had because I knew they would protect my knee and I was scared, you know, if I don't do this right, I may not get to play again. So all this is happening. We go home. I, I did some stuff with uh, FCA and stuff in between where I drove, spoke, raised money, drove back, did it again. Um, and then pretty much got kicked out of FCA. So that was a really, really tough uh, thing to swallow later on. And that's why, like, you can't put Jesus' face. Like, you can't let the church or a human being ever be what you see when you see Christianity um, mm. because it'll disappoint you. And like you said a minute ago, you don't know what someone's going through. You don't know why that really happened. And until you face it or you're willing to have that, you know, deep conversation, it's tough. So I signed with Texas. And my bench coach in uh, Pittsburgh was the manager there, but it was his first year or second year. I can't remember. And it was a sure thing that I was probably going to make the team. And I did, but there was a cost. I got multiple shots in my calf and around my knee to make it through. Everything that I thought was going to happen with protection didn't happen. I had a pretty good spring, tore my abdomen in a throw down to second, threw him out, did it again winced, fell to the ground. They pulled me out and said, all right, we got to get this fixed. But the kicker was prior to that game, I was told I made the team. The transaction never happened. So I've already called my mom, my dad. I made the team. Like, obviously that's unbelievable. So I never told that story until a couple years ago. I just said I tore my abdomen not to make the team. But since they didn't make a transaction... A lot of things go along with that. My agent couldn't find me on any roster or anything. So I was in limbo. I was a ghost. Well, I ended up that year failing a drug test because they didn't turn into TUE. I was the first person in Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball to get something overturned because someone stood up for me. I was never going to play the game again. I was going to have to sue MLB and make money and not do the thing I loved. So all this is happening. My wife wrote a hundred emails and it was all 
No one wanted to admit the mistake. Later on, my doctor actually ended up suing MLB. They actually took his MLB license away, which is nuts. And all this happened in 15. Well, then I play for five teams. I get designated. They get me out of Texas as fast as possible because there were so many mistakes made. And I go to my next team that I think, and I'm driving down the road. They call me and say, hey, your medicals aren't, aren't good. We're not going to bring you on. Well, they never got my medicals because the transactions were never there. So the portal was never updated. So then the next team calls. I end up signing with St. Louis and what a godsend that was. Um, I got around amazing guys. That's where I was told um, that within the next 12 hours, if this isn't resolved, you're going to be banned for 81 days. A lady stepped up and said, I know him. He is good. He's been on this medication since he was a child. What are we doing? Mm. It's not steroids. I mean, I was, I had ADD. Same medication I'd been taking for years. I saw three doctors or two doctors, one the team, one outside the team. Like I was the first person to submit my paperwork. It was unreal. And I'm just now starting to tell that story. And all this is happening. I just felt jacked up, right? Because here I am raking in AAA, getting an opportunity, feeling healthy, and I'm pulled in the office and said, you know, you felt a drug test 81 days in 12 hours. And I was like, okay. And then I resubmitted everything and everything was fine. Got called back up, got designated, got lied to. So it was going to be eight, big leagues in eight days. Wasn't in eight days, blah, blah, blah. Like it just went on and on, traded out of there. And it was just an ongoing cycle of just like, where am I going next? And where's Waldo? Me and my wife got disconnected because we didn't get to spend much time together. Um, it was really, really hard. And that was a cycle that kind of spun me out of control for a while. But looking back, all of it is a blessing in disguise because it made me look at a lot of childhood trauma that I didn't realize, all the identity issues that I grasped on to someone and said, you're my, like, I believe in you. Like the way you fellowship, the way you read the Bible, that's what I'm going to do. And then realizing, no, I just created discipline from someone else's habit, but I never created a relationship or an identity in Christ. And that's where my story really starts to grow. And that's where I'm at now is like, I had to really look at some things. And it's when my wife's dad passed away in 08 and we're getting married three months later. And the grace that the Rockies gave me to go home for eight days doesn't happen. I don't know how eight days. And we have to take care of all the bills. Her parents just had uh, went through a divorce. And my wife has to make all the decisions. And I'm there and I'm like, buddy, the elf at this time. Like, don't really understand. I'm just there because I'm supposed to be there hitting wiffle balls outside, showering every couple days. And then all of a sudden that line hits and my wife falls. And something, man, I, I cry every time. I walk over and just pick her up. And just start walking. And just happens to recently, I was just at Tennessee Hospital. I walked over a mile with my wife in my hands, sleeping on a bench, not eating right, no clue. And I couldn't do that on my best day. And all that to be said is like, that's a little glimpse of pain and suffering I saw in her all of a sudden made me realize what love was. And looking back on that day, the greatest example of Jesus Christ was someone that most people didn't even know if he believed. And that was her dad. Because he 
did everything in his life like a carpenter. He found the littlest joys in hanging the lights. He gave me some of the best wisdom that I still live by today. And he was the, the guy I saw when I saw Jesus. And looking back at it, being been in psychology, been with the psychiatrist for a long time. We talk about weird stuff all the time. And he's like, yeah, you're facing things people don't look at. And you're looking at things that people don't want to see based on your mom giving you a life that like she didn't have. So it gave you a chance to do that. And I hope one day you guys can walk through it. And I said, I doubt it. And he goes, me too. But like, that is what it is. So that 15 year started that process. And over the last seven years, I've been fighting demons and everything else in spiritual warfare, realizing what the weight is of what Jesus did for us based on some of the conversations I've had, some of the things and the unreal moments of life that you're willing to look at. And I think the more you're willing to walk through the darkness, this is Brene Brown, the more you're going to see the light. And that's throughout the Bible right? Who does everyone talk about in the Bible besides Jesus? Paul, right? Mm -hmm. The dude murdered Christians, the darkest of dark, like literally the exact opposite. And that's the guy we're looking at, you know, and that that's a redemption story. And I think sometimes it just takes more and the more you can handle, the more God allows you to handle, the more you have to use that for his glory, period. And that's, that's been the battle cry for me is like, jump in this journey, trust that where I'm going, God's going to say left or right. And don't worry about anything else. Let all the crap just move you forward any way possible and trust that God not is out in front, right? He's already done that. He's behind me. It says it in Isaiah, I think 31, 48, I believe there's going to be a faint whisper telling you which direction to go. That's in Michael's terms, not actual NIV, but we read that four months ago on the same day and said it at the exact same time. And we moved to Pittsburgh. And I think that was a huge jump for us to say, it's time to pack it up, drop the nets and go. So 15 to four months ago, three months ago is how long it took for me to take a huge leap of faith and say, why is all this happening and how am I going to use it for your glory? You want me here. I don't know why. I don't want to be here, but I'm here. What do we got? We're living in a place we didn't want to live. We're living in a house that we absolutely don't need, don't deserve. And we're looking for things a lot smaller. And I feel like it's all God. And it's the first time I could say, yeah, like I had nothing to do with this. Like wife didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be here. We love Tennessee. All these things fell through that were coming together all at the last second. And then our house was gone in Tennessee, literally gone. And we're in an apartment. Like we got to find a place. And it was just like one thing after another was falling apart. You know, like it's like, what is something's got to go right? Like something has to just fall <laughs> into place. But here's the crazy part. You wouldn't know. Mm. My family didn't know. My friends didn't know maybe one or two until I literally lost all sense of like, my well-being, no one really knew because I always had that light switch. I always had that willpower. I always had that all-in approach that it doesn't matter. I have to figure it out. I'll figure it out today. 
But that was me. That was me figuring it out. And until I let go, I couldn't move. I couldn't go anywhere, even though I was going everywhere. Wow. And that's hard. That was hard for me. And I'm still figuring it out because it's like, crap, I didn't do that right. You know, and it's, it's hard to process that with anybody, right? Because who are you going to talk to? It's your life. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to sit and listen more. I've done some things in extreme ways, like that people, people didn't notice or they didn't want to see. Like I, I'm a, I'm a freak when it comes to working out. I didn't work out for like four weeks, five weeks. I started to gain weight. I didn't look healthy. I'm not kidding. No one said anything. Not, not a single soul. And then I would go crush in the weight room for a week and be miserable because like, that's not healthy. And I was doing that over and over again. And it was like, Hey, what are you doing? It's like, I'm doing what I do. I'm testing the waters. I'm trying to figure out like where the threshold is of all in or all out, all realizing that my reality has to be straight to God. That relationship's got to be figured out based on who I am. Like, what do we got here? So Lecrae has a song that says, I've been wrestling with the Holy Ghost and his new, his new album's off the charts. Deconstruction. That last song on that album, to a T, is how I felt. And I'm talking, it just hit me right in the face because I had to go back to the Eastern views and get away from the Western views that created a Jesus that isn't the real biblical view. It was a worldview. And that's so true because I was painting all these pictures of who Jesus was, not realizing that the simplest man I knew and the person that showed me what grief, pain, suffering, and everything was by watching the person that I loved, that I didn't know what that was because emotion wasn't a thing. I was like a robot. Boom, hit me. And that moment from 08 all the way through to 15, never thought about but then my dad suffered. She saved his life. I loved her. The questions started arising. And, you know, eight years later with the pandemic, another knee surgery and craziness and attacks, all kinds of stuff. I'm thankful. Mom. I'm tired. I'm beaten, but I'm thankful. And I'm excited to where God's taken it. I'm scared, but that's reality. Yeah. And that says a lot. I mean, it says a lot about how Christians live their lives because, I mean, we're going to be battered. We're going to be bruised. We're going to be persecuted every single day of our lives. But for some odd reason, the weirdos that we call Christians are still thankful. We're still the happiest people because we have that relationship with Jesus. But Michael, as we do start to wrap up today, I did have one more question that I did want to ask you how how does God motivate you even still? Even now that you're done playing, now that you're in the broad or in as an analyst, how how does he still motivate you to be that gritty person, to be that all-in person every single day? Well, once I get past myself, my I don't know if it's ego, insecurity, or whatever it is, just my humanness, it's the sacrifice. I mean, ultimately like Every disciple gave their life for their faith. And I I say this to people a lot. What would you give your life up for? I think there's a lot of men that wouldn't die for their wives. 
I think there's a lot of people that would say something that may sound amazing, but when push come to shove, are you going to push Jesus out in the middle or are you going to be on the cross with him? And if you really can like look at that, tell me the shame doesn't feel. Tell me you don't fall to your knees. Tell me you don't even want to talk to God because you're human and he's not. And what he did is unfathomable, like unrealistic, unworldly. It, it, it can't be comprehended because you wouldn't do it. Because you're talking about dying for multiple strangers that you don't know when you literally were pissed off at the person in front of you slamming on the bricks today. Mm-hmm. And that's how he motivates me because it reminds me over and over and over again, there is no other way. There isn't another path. That sacrifice only makes sense. And the fact that our world, every way, shape, form is trying to replace him. You know, like when people talk about politics and argue about him, like it's just a replacement for God. That's all it is. Biblical principles gone is big problems coming, period. Because even if you don't believe in the Bible, you can look at it and say, if I read this and I follow the laws, the rules, and some of the people in this, I'm going to have a better life, period. Now, go read a self-help book. Same same thing, right? Like, But all right, now let's look at it as a storybook. This is a story. It's constantly evolving. Whether you look at it as that, like it's a bunch of cartoon characters, like you don't believe in the well, whatever, it doesn't matter. It still will lead you to a better life. And then, all right, now let's look at it as an evolving always changing book that somehow when you pick it up, you can read the same verse every single day for a year and that verse will hit you different. Name another book like that. So you're just looking at these things and you're like, it doesn't make sense. And because it doesn't make sense, that's the greatest gift that I get every single day. If I can see that it's hard to see, but when I see that it makes my heart pitter patter. It really does. Because it reminds me that like, this is nothing. And if I would just calm down and say, you got it. Tell me to sit, stand or walk, maybe run, but like literally don't let me get on a bicycle. Don't give me a motor vehicle, nothing. Like let me just move slowly and trust. And that starts with like understanding that the biggest thing that could happen on this world doesn't matter. Yeah. Who cares? Absolutely. You know, and that, but it, it's hard to remind yourself over and over again. And I don't know what God's in store, but like, I know it's not going to be easy. I know it's going to be gratifying, but if you can just say, well, does it really matter? If, if this is an eternity and this thing's not going to be relevant, I want to hear, well done. Let's go. We're going to go party. Get, grab yourself a big harmonica and let's go, you know, like however it is, like, I think it's going to be a party, but and worship all day, every day, but, and my white horse, but you have to believe that. And that comes from like, make it make sense any other way. Either everyone that believes in Christianity is just an absolute crazy person or that's real. And then when you really look at it from every standpoint, it only makes sense. You know, like when people are, oh, I'm an atheist. Well, then you believe in God. 
right? Because how did he exist? Like, where did he come from? You believe in an entity, so you believe in God. He's just your God, period. That's the end of your hierarchy, right? Yeah, that's that's a lot of think a lot to think about. But Michael, I I really I really can't thank you enough for coming on today. This was I mean it was so great hearing your story and, and just a snippet of what motivates you and what motivated you throughout your career. So I just want to say thank you again, um, and it really just means so much to, to, that you came on today. I really appreciate it. And I have one more piece of advice from Charles Patron, my mentor. I've watched his life transform. More is more in sports. Like there is no balance. Like I've seen that so much in today's society. Find balance. No, find obsession. Do more is going to create more. More isn't meaning more squats in the weight room until you break your knees in half. More is reading a book. More is learning recovery. More is asking questions and being curious. More is more. And depending on how you look at it, it's always going to come back to more is more. More time in the Bible is going to be better, not worse, right? But just that, just that alone, right, becomes an idol in itself because you're in love with the discipline, right? Like I always tried to read through the Bible cover to cover and I never could. And I I think it's the great lesson of, are you doing it for relationship and growth? Are you doing it to check a box? Is it a discipline, a habit, or is it an actual enthrallment into the word? Because we're called to say this, this is supposed to speak to me. So am I like letting it digest? Am I learning? So with, with all that being said is more is more, but find your more. Not everybody's a LeBron James going to create a scoring record or whatever, but whatever platform you have, wherever you're at, do the best you can to use it for his glory and admit that you're always going to fail because that's going to give people grace to see Christ, not the other way around. And we live in a society and we live in a sports centric world that forgets how hard life is and how hard sports can be. And if you don't remember, go do it. If you want to know how hard it is to carry a cross, go find a giant railroad tie, tie it to yourself. You don't have to nail it. We won't go full extreme, right? And start walking, but make sure that there's loud music. There's people with weapons there's feces and everything else, put yourself in reality. You know, there, there's, I, I promise this will be the last thing. Um, Tim Ferriss talked about a, I don't know if it's a prince or a king, that every year to bring back perspective, he would take off all of his royalness, like the robe, the jewelry, and go sleep in the slums in like rags for a week because he wanted a reminder of what it could be. So he appreciates it, appreciates what he has because it's always easy to look at all the things you don't have. But when you put perspective and you put someone else's reality there, it changes the game. Not saying that that's the right way to go about it. Like I told you, I'm an extremist. I'm all in all out. But like that would work for me. That's good for me. And it's good for some people. It's not for others. My wife, that would be good for my wife. 
she would go do that to be with those people to like nourish them and love them. That would be good for her. She would choose to do that. So I, I say that because I work with a lot of kids and what I'm seeing right now is really sad. So like own, own it and take responsibility. And if you're failing, you're winning, especially if you're young. So, cause we, we talked about a lot of things and that athlete part of it is really important to me because I think ath- athletics really catapult you into greatness when it comes to whether you're in business, whether you're, you know, a father or a mother, it gives you something that a lot of things can't, you know, it teaches you how to work well with others. It teaches you how to grind through tough times, work through adversity. You know, there's uh, a bunch of men that I've met that are CEOs. One that jumps to mind is Jimmy Haslam. And he says, I always look for the athlete. That's who I want to hire. If it comes between the two, I want the person that is competed, lost, failed, and somehow overcame. And his dad actually said on a podcast, which I never got to meet him, was I tried to find the person with the toughest life that probably shouldn't be in the room. And that's who I wanted to hire because they found a way and they'll find something I couldn't find. Well, that, I mean, that's a, that's a great way to end. I'm going to end the conversation there because that was great. Um, well, for all the listeners out there, please, please share this episode and subscribe to, to the podcast. It really does help us out. But if you don't get anything else from this, just remember this. Jesus loves you, and he's going to fight for you no matter what. I'll talk to you next time.